you're a moron, but it's not your fault. Like your brain, physiologically, that prefrontal cortex, you know what that is? That's the place of like rational, conscious thought. That's not even fully developed in your skull until you're 25 years old. You're a moron. Amen. Well, I want to start today by teaching you a word. It's not necessarily a new word, but especially for moments in scripture like we're about to get into. If you're new with us, we're in a series called Ephesians. And so we are literally taking a journey through the book of Ephesians together. And now we come up on some delicate moments, to put it lightly, especially from our modern sensibilities. And so we have to be thoughtful about this. So here's the word. I want to introduce you to anachronism. Who's ever heard of anachronism before? Anachronism is a word actually that was introduced to us by Pastor Marcus during our How to Read the Bible series, God Rest His Soul. <laughs> but anachronism is this. It's defined as an act of attributing a custom, event, or object to a period to which it does not belong. Let me give you an example. If you turn your eyes to the screen, first example of anachronism. What's wrong with this picture? Come on, all you 80s kids. This is anachronism. Modern day object in a period of time that it doesn't exist. I want to do a little more subtle one. The next one's a little more subtle. I want to just shout out all my 80s people. What, 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 what's this? Who's this? What's the character? Marty McFly. Back to the future. Do you remember this scene? Johnny be good. And he shreds on the guitar and he's doing all the things. And then at the end, how did it was it received? Everybody just stood there like, what just happened? Because he did something in a time where it didn't belong. It didn't make sense to them. It took them off guard. There was no point of reference for it. But we do this all the time when we study scripture. We take modern day sensibilities and perspectives and we overlay it onto our reading of scripture. And this is why understanding the historical context in which scripture was written is so important. Because to understand what is written, we need to understand the people it was written for. That's how we discover what the author's trying to say. Today, this skill, this idea is going to come really handy for us. So if, you're, if you have your Bibles, turn with me. Ephesians chapter 6. We're jumping into chapter 6. If you're online and you don't have a Bible, 
myevangel.church forward slash Bible. We'll get you a Bible digitally where we can just follow along together. If you're here and you do not have a Bible, you can see one of our ushers and we would love to gift you a Bible today and just resource you with that. So today we're starting a new chapter. So here we go. He's going to give us very practical examples of how we can do 521, which is what? Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the thesis. This is the main point. This is the main thing. Now he's going on and he's describing different areas of life where we can do this. And he says this, children. Children, you listening? You ready? I'm a little nervous about this. I'm not going to lie, guys. A little nervous about this. That's okay. We're going to do it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Any minors in the room, under 18, living at home, parents or guardians in the room? Yeah, I see a few hands, I see a few hands. Okay, I want to be like, I'm so nervous about this, guys. Okay, when I wrote this, I want you to know, when I wrote this, I kind of had this fun, playful feeling. So can we just go with that? Because I don't want to offend you. But I also want to tell you the truth. And I also want you to, I want the best for you. I want you to grow. I want you to know wisdom. I want you to know what it is to begin to take the journey of maturing. Is that okay? So can we just like, you know me. I love you. I'm being a little like, I'm going to push, the, I'm going to push things a little bit. That's like my, that's my precursor. Okay, I'm so nervous about this. But I hate to do this to you. This is the first place where Paul moves from the language of mutual submission to the word we translate as obey. This is different than husbands and wives. This is now a dynamic of authority that Paul is bringing to our attention. Children, obey your parents, your father and mother, for this is Right. That word right means righteous. You want to please God? Obey your earthly parents. Now, there's some caveats to this, obviously. You obey God first, always. If your parents are asking you to do something that is outside the realm of what God would ask you to do, find some trusted people in your life that you can talk that through. But this is in general terms. And the word in the Greek here means to listen to or hear with the intent of obeying. Listen to or to hear. And, and the word is a present tense imperative, which means we, we kind of discovered this last week with another word. Present tense imperative, it's ongoing. This is a journey that you continually hear and listen to 
with the intent to obey your parents. This is in the Bible. In fact, not only is it in the Bible, it's in, it's in the Old Testament. This is the fifth commandment. And Paul references back, honor your father and mother. He references back to the fifth commandment given to Israel. So how do we do that? How do we honor our father and our mother? By continually listening and hearing with the intent to obey. Why? Remember, I love you. Right? We established that. But I hate that. Why do we, why, why do you need to listen to your parents? Like most people aren't going to tell you this. Like we live in a culture that's just so like, hmm. Almost has this belief that like you got it all figured out. We just need to listen to you. But there's a reason we don't. Because if you're a kid in here, still growing, still living with your parents, still being developed, you're a moron. (laughs) But it's not your fault. It's not your fault. From, from one previous moron to another. It's not your fault. Like I talk to, especially guys in this room, like your brain, physiologically, that prefrontal cortex, you know what that is? That's the place of like rational, conscious thought. That's not even fully developed in your skull until you're 25 years old. You're a moron. And I say that with love. I want you to look around this room for a second. All all the kids, teens, students, look around this room for a second as I ask this next question. Adults, who in this room has identified, now that you're through that season, that you once, too, were a moron. Okay? I want you to just look around the room. Hands up. Hands up. Come on. Hands up. Hands up, friends. Come on. I want you to look around the room. This is universal. It's not your fault. We all once were, and sometimes, sometimes we still are. Morons. There's a few reasons for this. The gift of time and perspective changes a lot. The gift of experience, brokenheartedness, discovering the right way and the wrong way has given those who are older than you has given your parents the gift of perspective that you just don't have yet. Because it requires living some life beyond what you've lived. 
So it's not your fault. But what is Paul saying here? He says, obey your parents because this is right. And you don't just do this for them. In fact, there's actually three reasons you do this. Number one, you do it primarily as obedience to God. He says, for this is right. This is righteous. So we do it in obedience to God. Number two, you do it as your act of worship to God. You need to hear this. We just had a beautiful moment in worship, singing songs. It's unfortunate that we define that as worship. We leveraged music and lyrics and songs to worship. But our primary place of worship is obedience and submission to the ways of God. Number three, you should do it. You do it for you. You do it for you. You do it so that you can go further, faster, and stronger than we ever could. Most parents, and sadly there are exceptions to this rule, and if there's an exception in your life, look for some spiritual fathers and mothers that love you and believe in you. But most parents want you to succeed and thrive in this world. And they have that gift of perspective that can help you do it. And this perspective is what creates some of the rules that you have to follow in your house. It creates some of the moments where they call out behaviors in you that just aren't going to translate into living in society. That's their job. That's what God has entrusted them to do. That is what they are submitted to, raising you in the ways of God. Their one job is to raise you to know truth, to know Christ, to know how to interact in the world, and to give you the opportunity to hear perspective. And if you're wise and you want to go further, faster in this world, listen. Now that doesn't mean you, you can't challenge moments and challenge thought processes. You should. Some of us adults, we need to be challenged in the way in which we see the world as well. But don't do it in a heart of rebellion. Don't do it in a heart of anger. Do it in a heart of seeking to know the truth together. Children, obey your parents, for this is right. Parents, you're not off the hook. Paul isn't done. And in particular here, he calls out fathers. And we'll talk about why in a moment. He says, fathers, do not exasperate. That word exasperate means to provoke to anger. Do not provoke to anger. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Now, now why does Paul call out fathers in particular here? I think there might be a few reasons. 
I think in general, general terms, I think mothers tend to have a little more grace and patience with their children than fathers do. I don't know if you've had that experience in your life, but that's, that's, just, that's a generality. But there's a bigger reason that, that he's bringing it. So let, let's, let's remember this anachronism, right? Modern day sensibilities overlaid onto the biblical text. And we need to kind of shed ours in this case. And we've talked about this before, but William Barclay does a great job of kind of setting the scene for why Paul kind of exclusively speaks to fathers here in the first century. He says this, there was the Roman patria potestas, the father's power. And we've talked about this. Under the patria potestas, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could punish as he liked and could inflict the death penalty. With no recourse, friends, no recourse. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over a child's whole life. You think you have it bad. As long as the father lived, a Roman son never came of age. Even when he was a grown man, even if he were a magistrate of the city, even if the state had crowned him with well-deserved honors, he remained within his father's absolute power. And this is the climate in which Paul writes this moment. And we see a theme developing here, don't we? We see these ideas of power structures, and Paul speaks to them in such profound, kind of grassroots, hearts and minds, inspirational way. And he's changing the narrative a little bit. He's changing the value system. He's bringing us to a place of adopting a new world view. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. The word exasperate, like I said, is to provoke to anger. So how do we provoke to anger? I would love to hear maybe after the service how you would add to this list because this is not exhaustive in any way, shape, or form. But how do we provoke to anger? By creating unfair expectations by creating rules that are arbitrary and not consistent by withholding praise and affirmation while being quick to dish out disappointment and to point out failure and the reason that we're held to account in this moment is because we have the greater perspective. There's a flip side to that coin. Parents, you have a greater perspective. And so you have a greater responsibility to be fair, to want the best, to not create unfair expectations. Not just pointing out what's going wrong, but celebrating what's going so right. This is what you've been called to. And in doing so, we find families that become united, healthy, growing, missional, 
families that look outside of themselves. So fathers, mothers, show them more love than anger, more affirmation than disappointment, and more truth than your opinion. And you'll do all right. And now Paul makes a lateral move. And this is a move into an area that we don't fully understand. He moves into a sector of society that is a place of, it's so reprehensible to us in our modern day perspective. He addresses slaves and masters. Now, I don't know if your Bible, maybe your Bible has kind of washed things a little bit. Um, some translations take away the word slave and they put in the word bond servant. Uh, a bond servant was someone who was released as a slave and then out of their own free will chose to serve a family or a master. And that was a bond servant. So some translations like that idea much, much better because it's way less controversial, way less dark. And so maybe your translation says bond servant. I hate to tell you, in the Greek, it's just slave. This is someone who is subjugated, someone who is owned, okay? This is someone who is a commodity. And I want to kind of set the tone for this so we can kind of understand what Paul does here because it's brilliant. I believe that Paul kind of changes everything in the way in which he builds out these ideas in the first century. And I think this is important. There's a few ways that I want to kind of address this. There's, you know, there's the easy way where we just like kind of gloss over the whole slaves and masters in the Bible thing and just kind of like add it into maybe like, let's just think more modern day terms. Let's think employee and employer, business owner and the one making a paycheck, and let's pull out principles. But the reason I don't think I want to do that today is because one of the number one reasons I hear in terms of objections to the Christian faith is, well, how could you believe a faith? How could you believe a Bible that endorses and condones slavery? Who's ever heard that before? Today, I want to push back on that. And I want to show you what Paul actually does as he inspires and changes hearts and minds through the truth of God revealed to the world. Because I would put it to you that we live in the world and the sentiment and the perspective we do today because of the word of God. So let's jump into Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. This is a tall order. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. 
Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. You notice what happens there? What just happened there? The reward is what? Is equal. Notice what Paul's doing here. He's building something. And then he says in verse 9, And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Now, to understand this, we need to understand the first century. There was not a single abolitionist sentiment in the first century. In fact, in the first century, there was no belief that any system of society could operate without slavery. Now, in the Roman Empire alone, it's estimated that there were 60 million slaves. I want you to think about that for a moment. Canada, we're about 38 million and change. Some of you are maybe from, are from South Africa. South Africa is about 60 million people. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. John Stott writes this. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt. The prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody queried or challenged the arrangement. This is just how it was. And this is the climate in which Paul writes these words. I want to kind of paint in and color the sentiment a little bit more with an individual from antiquity that you would know. I want to read you the words of Aristotle. He says this, A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. This is just how it was. And into this moment, into this culture, Paul writes these words. And I want you to consider how revolutionary they truly are. As was said last week by Dr. Joseph, the first part of this verse isn't very surprising. Slaves, obey your masters. Not very surprising. It's the second part that becomes revolutionary and surprising. Because Paul introduces a concept here that changes everything. He encourages slaves, don't just do it for your masters, right? But do it as 
unto the Lord. He's kind of mirroring a sister verse that he writes to the Colossians. He says in Colossians 3, 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay? So there's a perspective. There's an eternal perspective change for the believer in Christ Jesus. You're not working for man. You're working for God. And then we enter into the realm of what I would like to argue sets the table for our modern day sensibilities and moral position around slavery. Let me ask you the question, how do you change culture and society at scale? I would say you can do it primarily two ways. You can do it with fear, or you can do it with inspiration. Fear, we push people to change. Inspiration, we pull people into change. And I would say that Paul in this moment is inspiring a new worldview to bring change to the very fabric of society. He writes to a society that felt that slavery was the only viable option for a working and thriving system. And so in saying what he says, he establishes a new framework to think about it to think about people, to think about humanity. The idea that we are all created equal and have intrinsic worth. How does he do that? Because we're going to share the same reward, because we're both serving the same master, and because we're all called to this idea of mutual submission in the body of Christ. Remember the thesis statement. Be filled with the Spirit, submitting to one another in reverence for Christ. So let's consider the great abolitionists, if you will. Consider William Wilberforce, the parliamentarian in Britain. He was a believer. The scriptures after the Great Reformation shaped his worldview, shaped his perspective. At 28 years old, he wrote this in his diary. God Almighty has set before me two great objects. The oppression of the slave trade and reformation of morals. Imagine that on your vision board. And as parliamentarian, he was instrumental in the abolition of the slave trade in Great Britain. Consider Charles Spurgeon, the great orator of his day and his time. Maybe one of the greatest of all time. His sermons were burned in America because he said these things. He called slavery the foulest blot. And he said, may have to be washed out in blood. A worldview shaped by the scriptures. He couldn't turn to the scriptures. He couldn't turn to the words of Paul and reconcile it with what he saw around him. John Wesley, the great revivalist, instrumental in the Methodist movement. Almost a 30-year revival, by the way. If you ever want to get into 
the Methodist revival, 30-year revival, guys. Amazing. But he denounced slavery, calling it the sum of all villainies. And he detailed publicly its abuses. I believe that this right here is the end result of the words written by Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, into a culture and a moment when no one believed that there was any other way to have a society that functioned. And instead of Paul pushing for 60 million people to rise up and to fight against, instead of pushing with fear, he created a framework to inspire a changing of worldview. And I believe the sentiments that we carry today are the direct result of Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, changing our perspective. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Now, what is not so subtle is how Paul finishes out this moment, writing to those who are masters in his society. What does he say? The second part of verse 9. He says, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Think about that. Think of the picture he's painting. He's painting a picture of power, authority, kingship, mastery over all. Remember, he's in heaven. He's both your master and their master. And there is no favoritism in him. Now here's what's so interesting. Paul does inspire, but he does end with a little bit of healthy fear. Because what is wisdom? We've already established it a few weeks ago. What is wisdom? Where's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where we start from. And there's a level of motivation in this idea of our judgment before God. So Paul sets the framework. He sparks the flame that leads us to today. And so these are the examples of wives and husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. This is how Paul sees it working out. Being filled with the Spirit and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we do it for the sake of community. We do it for the sake of our own growth and maturing. We do it for the sake of the mission set before us. And in doing so, we show the world a better way. So business owners, managers, supervisors, don't lean on positions of power, but rather serve those you oversee 
because ultimately their win is your win. Children, obey your parents or guardians for this is right. This is righteous. This is how you submit to God. Parents, be gentle, encouraging, full of love for your children, serving them in this way. And the next time someone tells you that Christianity is reprehensible because it supports slavery, ask them why they hold the position that slavery is reprehensible. Because you can draw a direct line from this moment in the first century to our modern day sensibilities today. Because it's God who says there's intrinsic value in each human being. It's God who says they've been made in my image. It's God who through the inspiration of the spirit began to reshape the worldview in the first century that leads us to this moment today. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for changing everything. For this journey of continually submitting to your way, to your truth, to your life. Holy Spirit, go before us as we seek to be kids that love you and serve you and walk in what is righteous. Go before us as we seek to be parents empowered by the Holy Spirit with the perfect example of a good father to serve and love and encourage and build up our kids. And Lord, for those of us employed <laughs> or in positions of power, Lord, help us to mutually serve because we recognize that a win for one is a win for the other. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we close in an act of worship, friends. <laughs>